0: Chapter 9 of the Land That Time Forgot This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Land That Time Forgot by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 9 As I stood looking down upon that sad and lonely mound, Wrapped in the most dismal of reflections and premonitions, I was suddenly seized from behind and thrown to earth. As I fell a warm body fell on top of me, and hands grasped my arms and legs. When I could look up I saw a number of giant fingers pinioning me down, while others stood about surveying me. Here again was a new type of man, a higher type than the primitive tribe I had just quitted. They were a taller people too, with better-shaped skulls and more intelligent faces. There were less of the ape characteristics about their features, and less of the negroid, too. They carried weapons, stone-shod spears, stone knives and hatchets, and they wore ornaments and breech-cloths, the former of feathers worn in their hair, and the latter made of a single snake-skin, cured with the head on, the head depending to their knees." Of course I did not take in all these details upon the instant of my capture, for I was busy with other matters. Three of the warriors were sitting upon me, trying to hold me down by main strength and awkwardness, and they were having their hands full in the doing, I can tell you. I don't like to appear conceited, but I may as well admit that I am proud of my strength and the science that I have acquired and developed in the directing of it, that and my horsemanship I always have been proud of and now that day all the long hours that I had put into careful study, practice, and training brought me in two or three minutes a full return upon my investment. Californians, as a rule, are familiar with jiu-jitsu, and I especially had made a study of it for several years, both at school and in the gym of the Los Angeles Athletic Club, while recently I had had in my employ a Japanese who was a wonder at the art, it took me just about thirty seconds to break the elbow of one of my assailants, trip another, and send him stumbling backward among his fellows, and throw the third completely over my head in such a way that when he fell his neck was broken. In the instant that the others of the party stood in mute and inactive surprise, I unslung my rifle, which carelessly I had been carrying across my back, and when they charged, as I felt they would, I put a bullet in the forehead of one of them. This stopped them all, temporarily, not the death of their fellow, but the report of the rifle, the first they had ever heard. Before they were ready to attack me again, one of them spoke in a commanding tone to his fellows, and in a language similar but still more comprehensive than that of the tribe to the south, as theirs was more complete than alms. He commanded them to stand back, and then he advanced and addressed me, he asked me who I was, from whence I came, and what my intentions were. I replied that I was a stranger in Kaspak, that I was lost, and that my only desire was to find my way back to my companions. He asked where they were, and I told him toward the south somewhere, using the Caspakian phrase which literally translated means toward the beginning. His surprise showed upon his face before he voiced it in words, There are no Galus there, he said. I tell you, I said angrily, that I am from another country, far from Caspak, far beyond the high cliffs. I do not know who the Galus may be. I have never seen them. This is the farthest north I have been. Look at me. Look at my clothing and my weapons. Have you ever seen a Galu or any other creature in Caspak who possessed such things? He had to admit that he had not and also that he was much interested in me, my rifle, and the way I had handled his three warriors. Finally he became half convinced that I was telling him the truth and offered to aid me if I would show him how I had thrown the man over my head and also make him a present of the bang spear, as he called it. I refused to give him my rifle, but promised to show him the trick he wished to learn if he would guide me in the right direction. He told me that he would do so tomorrow, that it was too late today, and that I might come to their village and spend the night with them. I was loath to lose so much time, but the fellow was obdurate, and so I accompanied them. The two dead men they left where they had fallen, nor gave them a second glance. Thus cheap is life upon Caspak. These people also were cave-dwellers, but their cave showed the result of a higher intelligence that brought them a step nearer to civilized man than the tribe next toward the beginning. The interiors of their caverns were cleared of rubbish, though still far from clean, and they had pallets of dried grasses covered with the skins of leopard, lynx, and bear, while before the entrances were barriers of stone and small rudely circular stone ovens. The walls of the cavern to which I was conducted were covered with drawings scratched upon the sandstone. There were the outlines of the giant red deer, of mammoths, of tigers, and other beasts. Here, as in the last tribe, there were no children, or any old people. The men of this tribe had two names, or rather names of two syllables, and their language contained words of two syllables, whereas in the tribe of Tsah, the words were all of a single syllable, with the exception of a very few like Attis and Galus. The chief's name was Tojo, and his household consisted of seven females and himself. These women were much more comely or rather less hideous than those of Stah's people. One of them even was almost pretty, being less hairy and having a rather nice skin with high coloring. They were all much interested in me and examined my clothing and equipment carefully, handling and feeling and smelling of each article. I learned from them that their people were known as Bandlu or spearmen. Saw's race was called stolu, Hatchetmen. Below these, in the scale of evolution, came the Bolu, or club men, and then the Alus, who had no weapons and no language. In that word I recognized what to me seemed the most remarkable discovery I had made upon Caprona, for unless it were mere coincidence I had come upon a word that had been handed down from the beginning of spoken language upon earth, had been handed down for millions of years, perhaps, with little change, it was the sole remaining thread of the ancient woof of a dawning culture which had been woven when caprona was a fiery mount upon a great land teeming with life it linked the unfathomable then to the eternal now and yet it may have been pure coincidence my better judgment tells me that it is coincidence that in caspak the term for speechless man is alus and in the outer world of our own day it is alalus THE COMELY WOMAN OF WHOM I SPOKE WAS CALLED SOTA, AND SHE TOOK SUCH A LIVELY INTEREST IN ME THAT TOJO FINALLY OBJECTED TO HER ATTENTIONS, EMPHASIZING HIS DISPLEASURE BY KNOCKING HER DOWN AND KICKING HER INTO A CORNER OF THE CAVERN. I LEAPED BETWEEN THEM WHILE HE WAS STILL KICKING HER, AND OBTAINING A QUICK HOLD UPON HIM, DRAGGED HIM SCREAMING WITH PAIN FROM THE CAVE. THEN I MADE HIM PROMISE NOT TO HURT THE SHE AGAIN, UPON PAIN OF WORSE PUNISHMENT. Sota gave me a grateful look, but Tojo and the balance of his women were sullen and ominous. Later in the evening Sota confided to me that she was soon to leave the tribe. Sota soon to be Krolu, she confided in a low whisper. I asked her what a Krolu might be, and she tried to explain, but I do not yet know if I understood her. From her gestures I deduced that the Crowlews were a people who were armed with bows and arrows, had vessels in which to cook their food, and huts of some sort in which they lived and were accompanied by animals. It was all very fragmentary and vague, but the idea seemed to be that the Crowlews were a more advanced people than the Bandloos. I pondered a long time upon all that I had heard before sleep came to me. I tried to find some connection between these various races that would explain the universal hope which each of them harbored that some day they would become Galus sota had given me a suggestion, but the resulting idea was so weird that I could scarce even entertain it. Yet it coincided with alm's expressed hope with the various steps in evolution I had noted in the several tribes I had encountered. And with the range of type represented in each tribe, for example, among the Bandlu were such types as Sota, who seemed to me to be the highest in the scale of evolution, and Tojo, who was just a shade nearer the ape. While there were others who had flatter noses, more prognathous faces, and hairier bodies. The question puzzled me. Possibly, in the outer world, the answer to it is locked in the bosom of the Sphinx. Who knows? I do not. Thinking the thoughts of a lunatic or a dope fiend, I fell asleep, and when I awoke my hands and feet were securely tied and my weapons had been taken from me. How they did it without awakening me I cannot tell you. It was humiliating, but it was true. Tojo stood above me. The early light of morning was dimly filtering into the cave. "'Tell me,' he demanded, "'how to throw a man over my head and break his neck.' FOR I AM GOING TO KILL YOU, AND I WISH TO KNOW THIS THING BEFORE YOU DIE. OF ALL THE INGENUOUS DECLARATIONS I HAVE EVER HEARD, THIS ONE caught THE proverbial BUN. IT STRUCK ME AS SO FUNNY THAT EVEN IN THE FACE OF DEATH I LAUGHED. DEATH, I MAY REMARK HERE, HAD, HOWEVER, LOST MUCH OF HIS TERROR FOR ME. I HAD BECOME A DISCIPLE OF Lys's FLEETING PHILOSOPHY OF THE VALUELESSNESS OF HUMAN LIFE. I REALIZED THAT SHE WAS QUITE RIGHT that we were but comic figures hopping from the cradle to the grave of interest to practically no other created thing than ourselves and our few intimates. Behind Tojo stood Sota. She raised one hand with the palm toward me, the Caspakian equivalent of a negative shake of the head. Let me think about it, I parried, and Tojo said that he would wait until night. He would give me a day to think it over. Then he left, and the women left the men for the hunt, and the women, as I later learned from Sota, for the warm pool where they immerse their bodies as did the she's of the Solu. Atta, explained Sota, when I questioned her as to the purpose of this matutinal rite, but that was later. I must have lain there bound and uncomfortable for two or three hours when at last Sota entered the cave. She carried a sharp knife, mine, in fact, and with it she cut my bonds. "'Come!' she said, Sota will go with you back to the Galus. It is time that Sota left the Bandlud. Together we will go to the Krolu, and after that the Galus. Tojo will kill you tonight. He will kill Sota if he knows that Sota aided you. We will go together. I will go with you to Krolu, I replied, but then I must return to my own people toward the beginning. You cannot go back, she said. It is forbidden. THEY WOULD KILL YOU. THUS FAR HAVE YOU COME. THERE IS NO RETURNING. BUT I MUST RETURN, I INSISTED. MY PEOPLE ARE THERE. I MUST RETURN AND LEAD THEM IN THIS DIRECTION. SHE INSISTED, AND I INSISTED, BUT AT LAST WE COMPROMISED. I WAS TO ESCORT HER AS FAR AS THE COUNTRY OF THE Krolu, AND THEN I WAS TO GO BACK AFTER MY OWN PEOPLE AND LEAD THEM NORTH INTO A LAND WHERE THE DANGERS WERE FEWER AND THE PEOPLE LESS MURDEROUS she brought me all my belongings that had been filched from me rifle ammunition knife and thermos bottle and then hand in hand we descended the cliff and set off toward the north for three days we continued upon our way until we arrived outside a village of thatched huts just at dusk sota said that she would enter alone i must not be seen if i did not intend to remain as it was forbidden that one should return and live after having advanced this far so she left me. She was a dear girl, and a staunch and true comrade, more like a man than a woman. In her simple barbaric way she was both refined and chaste. She had been the wife of Tojo. Among the Krolu she would find another mate after the manner of the strange Caspakian world, but she told me very frankly that whenever I returned she would leave her mate and come to me, as she preferred me above all others. I was becoming a lady's man after a lifetime of bashfulness. At the outskirts of the village I left her without even seeing the sort of people who inhabited it, and set off through the growing darkness toward the south. On the third day I made a detour westward to avoid the country of the Bandlu, as I did not care to be detained by a meeting with Tojo. On the sixth day I came to the cliffs of the Stolu, and my heart beat fast as I approached them. For here was Lys. Soon I would hold her tight in my arms again. Soon her warm lips would merge with mine. I felt sure that she was still safe among the hatchet people, and I was already picturing the joy and the love light in her eyes when she should see me once more as I emerged from the last clump of trees and almost ran toward the cliffs. It was late in the morning. The women must have returned from the pool. Yet, as I drew near, I saw no sign of life, whatever. They have remained longer, I thought, but when I was quite close to the base of the cliffs I saw that which dashed my hopes and my happiness to earth. Strewn along the ground were a score of mute and horrible suggestions of what had taken place during my absence, bones picked clean of flesh, the bones of manlike creatures, the bones of many of the tribe of Stolu nor in any cave was there sign of life. Closely I examined the ghastly remains, fearful each instant that I should find the dainty skull that would shatter my happiness for life, but though I searched diligently, picking up every one of the twenty-odd skulls, I found none that was the skull of a creature but slightly removed from the ape. Hope, then, still lived, For another three days I searched north and south, east and west, for the hatchet men of Kaspak, but never a trace of them did I find. It was raining most of the time now, and the weather was as near cold as it ever seems to get on Caprona. At last I gave up the search and set off toward Fort Dinosaur. For a week, a week filled with the terrors and dangers of a primeval world, I pushed on in the direction I thought was south. The sun never shone, the rain scarcely ever ceased falling, the beasts I met with were fewer in number but infinitely more terrible in temper, yet I lived on until there came to me the realization that I was hopelessly lost, that a year of sunshine would not again give me my bearings, and while I was cast down by this terrifying knowledge, the knowledge that I never again could find less I stumbled upon another grave, the grave of William James, with its little crude headstone and its scrawled characters recording that he had died upon the 13th of September, killed by a saber-toothed tiger. I think that I almost gave up then. Never in my life have I felt more hopeless or helpless or alone. I was lost. I could not find my friends. I did not even know that they still lived. In fact, I could not bring myself to believe that they did. I was sure that Lys was dead. I wanted myself to die, and yet I clung to life, useless and hopeless and harrowing a thing as it had become. I clung to life because some ancient reptilian forebear had clung to life and transmitted to me through the ages the most powerful motive that guided his minute brain, the motive of self-preservation. At last I came to the great barrier cliffs, and after three days of mad effort, of maniacal effort, I scaled them. I built crude ladders, I wedged sticks in narrow fissures, I chopped toe-holds and finger holes with my long knife, but at last I scaled them. Near the summit I came upon a huge cavern. It is the abode of some mighty winged creature of the Triassic, or rather it was. Now it is mine. I slew the thing and took its abode i reached the summit and looked out upon the broad gray terrible pacific of the far southern winter it was cold up there it is cold here to-day yet here i sit watching 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 for the thing i know will never come for a sail End of chapter nine